my family just recently finished watching. It's an old show. It's called 15. I don't know if any of you remember that. It was a 90s TV show. It was a teenage soap opera. Really, really bad acting um, because it's a bunch of young kids that um, I don't think went anywhere except for one of them became a pretty famous actor. But um, it had four seasons in it. And the final episode of the show is probably, in my opinion, is probably the worst final episode, I think, in the history of TV. Um, it left, like, all kinds of details floating around in space with nothing to tie the loose ends up. And we finished it, and we were just like, what? That's the end? And so it was really, really bad. It was bad acting. It was bad from the beginning. It ended in a very bad way as well. When Luke wrote his gospel... So we've been going through Acts, which Luke wrote, but when Luke wrote his gospel, he told the story of Jesus' birth, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, the resurrection appearances, his promise of Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit to come, and the ascension to heaven. And the last two verses of Luke's gospel say this, Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. And if you read that, that, that sounds like a feel-good ending. Their Lord had been crucified and, and put in a grave, but now they've been able to encounter him face-to-face as he, after he's resurrected, and so they know he's not dead. And so um, Luke has this ending to his gospel that I think could be a good conclusion tying up loose ends, and he could have concluded that, and it would have been just like that, and it would have been a great story. It would have been a great historical account. But Luke could have also ended his book by saying this, Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God to be continued, dot, dot, dot. Well, we know that he did continue that account because that's what we've been studying um, for the almost two years um, to today. And um, he wrote his letter, the second letter, the follow-up, the continuation to Theophilus, who received the first letter, which was his gospel. And now he's telling about the acts of the apostles and everything that's happened with the church. So today we come to the conclusion of that account, the conclusion of our study. We've done 65 sermons in Acts. Um, it's taken close to two years because we've taken breaks for Christmas and Easter, and we had a break at the beginning of the pandemic when we studied the Holy Spirit. But now we're here at the very end. Let's look at our text, Acts chapter 27, starting in 28, starting in 17. If you're able to stand, would you please stand, honor God, as we read his word. I'm going to sum up a little bit so it's not so long of a text to read. Last week in chapter 27, we talked about the shipwreck. Sorry, two weeks ago, the shipwreck in 27. Last week, we talked about their time on Malta after the shipwreck. And then they took off from Malta after verse 10. They take off. And Luke records where they go, a couple places that they stop. But they find themselves now in Rome. They're finally in Rome. 
that comes in verse 14. They're finally in Rome. They meet some of the brothers from Italy, from different places in Italy, and uh, meet with them and are encouraged by them. Three days, Paul is in Rome before he starts working. He doesn't take long before he starts working, and he meets with some Jewish leaders. Here's the basic thing of what he says, and then we'll pick up reading in verse 23. The basic thing he tells them is, I want you to know three things. I want you to know I've done nothing against the law or against our people. I was found innocent by the Romans when I was handed over to them. And the third thing is, the only reason I am here in Rome is because the Jews wouldn't accept the Roman charge of, or Roman uh, decision that I was innocent. And so they forced me to appeal to Caesar. And so... Paul just, and he concludes with this, he says, it is because of the hope of Israel, the same thing that you guys have, same hope you have, that I'm in this chain. Verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers so that they could hear his teaching. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after, saw, after Paul had made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the book of Acts. What a wonderful picture into what you are doing among your church. What a wonderful picture of what that those early stages looked like. And we, as we've studied and gone through it, we've been able to learn. I feel like we know Paul. I feel like um, we have kind of been a part of the struggles the early church had and how they wrestled with things and how they learned to listen to you and depend on your Holy Spirit and use your word to be grounded in the truth as they moved forward and took the gospel message out. So I pray that this has been beneficial for everybody. I know it has been for me. As we wrap it up today with this last text, let us... um, hear from you what we need to know and learn in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, so first thing in your notes that we're going to cover is that Paul is still on gospel mission. He's been, he had been arrested and he's been on trial numerous times and it's been a long two years and yet he gets to Rome he waits for three days and he's already back 
on gospel mission. Now, if you look at your text, if you look, um, <clears throat> Luke says, when he's, ta- when he's talking about Paul addressing the Jewish leaders and he, and he is teaching them about Jesus, he's trying to convince them from the law of Moses and from the prophets, and it says in verse 24, and some were convinced by what he said and others disbelieved. Um, I was reading something from John Stott this past week, and he was talking about the structure, the Greek sentence structure here and the grammar that is used, and um, he was saying that this word that we translate, um, at least in the ESV, it's translated others disbelieved. Sometimes uh, some translations translate it as they would not believe. He was talking about the, di- those are two different things. They disbelieved or they would not believe. One's a willful thing. One is a, I just I am not convinced. And so John Stott was saying that the Greek st- sentence structure and the language there indicates it's a refusal to believe. And so I think, um, I know the NIV says would not believe. Um, I didn't look into all of the different translations we use that, to see what speaks of what, but I think that's a better translation because of the way the Greek language is used here. If it's a, with, with a refusal to believe, uh, a rejection of that, Paul does not then hold back, but rather he applies Isaiah's prophecy to these Jews who have hardened their hearts. A refusal to believe is a hardening of your heart toward God. And so he applies this prophecy as they have hardened their hearts to the gospel message. It, will you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6? I want to read through the prophecy in Isaiah. Talk a little bit about some of the main points that Isaiah is making here. And then we'll get back into why Paul applies this to these people. So if you are in Isaiah 6, the prophecies, the whole chapter of, of 6, the beginning of it describes, the beginning of it describes, so we get the context, describes that Isaiah is able to see, God opens up heaven and Isaiah is able to see God sitting on his throne. He tells us when this happens. Verse 1 says, in the year King Uzziah died. So he tells us, gives us a reference to the timing. God opens up heaven and allows Isaiah to see him on his throne and see what's going on around him. And there are seraphs that are flying around and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Their voices cause the foundations to um, shake. And Isaiah says this. Pick up with me in verse 5. Isaiah says this. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of 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 people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so one of the seraphs comes... It flies over to him. He's used tongs to take a coal, live coal, out of the fire from the altar. And he touches Isaiah's lips and he says, you have been clean. He says, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And then God 
calls out to find out who will go and be a messenger for him. And he says, he says I heard a voice from the, uh, of the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, here's the prophecy. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then Isaiah says, how long, O Lord? And God says, until, city, in, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. All right, so let's look at some of let's look at the main pieces here of this prophecy because this prophecy is actually really really important. If you look at prophecies from the Old Testament that are then used in the New Testament, you might see you might see a prophecy used once or twice. We may have a couple, two or three even, maybe in the Gospels where it's speaking of a, a specific prophecy that maybe Jesus used, but that's all in the same context. I'm talking it might be used once or twice in separate contexts, but the Gospels are all recording the life of Jesus, and so they might have, you might have three or maybe all four Gospels use a prophecy, but in different contexts, prophecies are not used that often. This one is used in four separate contexts. It's used, Isaiah speaks it here. We're going to talk in a minute about a place in John where Jesus talks about, uses this prophecy. Paul is using the prophecy in our text here. So this is a pretty important thing for us to just take a closer look at. So let's look at the main pieces here. Um, verse 1 says, it was in the year that King Uzziah died. That's 740 B.C. 740 B.C. is when God called Isaiah to take this message. Verse 5, wh where we picked up reading, says, Woe to me, or woe is, woe is me. And Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and I've just seen God. And so Isaiah thinks he's going to die. The unclean lips thing. If you think about it, your lips are to proclaim, right? The words that you think are coming through your mouth. The things you believe that you want to state to people are, or proclaim to people are coming through your mouth. And Jesus tells us that the things that come out of our mouth, the things that we believe, the things that we think, those are things that, that all comes from the overflow of our heart. So if our heart is pure, then things that are pure, pure will come out of our mouth. But if our heart is wicked, then things that are wicked will come out of our mouth. And so Isaiah is understanding that he's a sinner. He's among people who, in, at, by this time, he's among people who have rejected God. They've run after other idols. They've um, engaged in wicked practices that God has made very clear in his word and his law were unlawful for them to do. And so Isaiah recognizes, I've just seen God and I am among a people of unclean lips. Who, whose overflow of their unclean and wicked heart is speaking unclean and wicked things. So they have, um, he identifies himself with that 
situation, people who have rejected God. The prophecy, verses 9 to 10, the prophecy, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So they have the sin of rejection of God already, and so God takes an already hardened heart and hardens it even more. It's a heart It's a heart that has rejected him, has been hardened toward him, hardened toward his words, and after so long, God says, okay, I'll give you over to your will, and I will harden your heart as well. And Isaiah says, well, how long is that going to go on? And he says, until the cities lie in ruin without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted, the fields are ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. Speaking of the coming fall of Judah and the exile, which took place in 586 B.C. So the start of that, 740 B.C., the year King Uzziah died, God called Isaiah to send a message to his people. The message was, you've rejected me, you've hardened your hearts, so I'm going to hand you over to your will, and I will harden your hearts as well. And Isaiah says, when's this going to end, or when's it going to happen? And God says, until what he describes what happens in the exile, 586 B.C., relatively short period of time for some some prophecies to take place some some wait hundreds and hundreds of years some we're still waiting on um this is 154 years for what isaiah proclaims to the people all right let's now get back into our text in acts now that we've looked at that a little bit because what we see among the jews and why paul uses this prophecy against them is that the Jews in Rome have chose to willfully disbelieve in God. They've chose, chosen to not listen to the Lord. Verse 27 of our text, where, he's, where Paul is reciting the prophecy, he says, For this people... This people's, uh, so for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes they ha- their ears they can barely hear, their eyes they have closed. So it says in verse 27 that they, can't, they can barely even hear with their ears, and they have chosen to close their eyes to God's message of the gospel. They've stopped listening to God, and so they've willfully rejected him. Um, John MacArthur, I think, has a really good way to explain this and so he says this he says willful unbelief is turned into sovereign unbelief willful unbelief is turned into sovereign unbelief they chose that for themselves they chose to reject the gospel message when paul laid out how logically it makes sense with the old testament and all of its prophecies and the law how it's fulfilled in christ They chose that for themselves to reject it. And so God has brought their will to fulfillment and now they can't see or hear him. We see this in other places in scripture. We see it when Pharaoh hardened his heart toward God and his messenger Moses. Um, Eventually the scripture tells us that God hardened uh, hardened Pharaoh's heart. But let let me briefly walk you through how that all played out. 
Moses had 12 encounters with Pharaoh. The first one was the initial request for him to let the people go sacrifice in the wilderness. And Pharaoh rejected that. So there was a resistance to God's message. Pharaoh rejected God to start. The second time he encountered him was when he performed the miracle of turning the staff into a snake and then back to a staff. And when Pharaoh's magicians were able to imitate it somehow, make it look like they were doing the same thing, Pharaoh resisted, rejected, and hardened his heart toward God. The next... 10 encounters are the 10 plagues. What we have in the first five plagues, so you've got, you've got the initial rejection with the request, you've got the rejection, the hardening of the heart with the miraculous sign to demonstrate God's power. Then you have the first five um, plagues. So seven times now, those first five plagues it says that Scripture tells us that either Pharaoh's heart was hard or that Pharaoh, more directly, Pharaoh hardened his heart. So the first seven encounters, those first two and then the first five plagues, it's Pharaoh hardening his heart against God. It's not until plague number six that Scripture tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so what we have here is what Isaiah is describing and what John MacArthur calls willful unbelief turning into sovereign unbelief, we've got someone who has hardened his heart toward God time and time again. And finally, God says, okay, that's what you want. I will harden your heart for you because you will not listen. Willful rejection of God on the part of the human becomes a divine hardening or a divine cause for rejection the gospel of john in chapter 12 we turn to john chapter 12 with me please john writes about the unbelief of the jews and he quotes isaiah 6 this prophecy to demonstrate how god will sometimes give over give us over to our own will so if you have john 12 we're going to read 37 to 40. You can also look on the screen if you want to look on the screen, but these are places that I want to emphasize as we read it. So if you're following along, John 12, 37. Again, John is writing about the unbelief of the Jews. And he says, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, so Jesus had just been performing all kinds of miracles to demonstrate his power, to demonstrate his call as the Messiah. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. They would not believe in him. John says this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, the Lord who has the Lord who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. And then John says this, for this reason. Now, for this reason is talking about the fact that they would not believe him, okay? He's using the Isaiah prophecy as just something to support what he's saying, but this picks up here. For this reason, because they wouldn't believe him, they could not believe 
because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so that so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. And so they would not believe, and because of that, then they could not believe. They chose to not believe, and so God gives them over to their will and hardens their heart. When this happens in Rome, so back in our text in Acts chapter 28, Paul's in Rome, he's in chains, he's trying to share the gospel message with the Jewish leaders in Italy. When this happens in Rome with the Jews, Paul states that what he has stated in other places as we studied Acts, that he was going to take the gospel now to the Gentiles because the Gentiles will actually listen to him. Now, the significance of this one, because he said this two, maybe three other times. I think three other times in his missionary journeys. But the significance of this one is that Paul has now reached the entire Roman world, which in his day was considered to be the most significant parts of the world. He is finally at Rome, which is the climax of his missionary journeys. He's been longing to go to Rome for a long time. He had to wait more than two years sitting in a prison to finally get to Rome. And when he gets there, he's not free to roam around like he did on his missionary journeys. He's chained in a prison. But he finally got to Rome. It's the climax of what he's been wanting to do. Here he's in the capital city, which is the central nerve of the whole world at that time. And he's rejected a final time by his own people, the Jews. And so he says the gospel will now focus on the Gentiles because they will not harden their hearts. Paul has witnessed, he's witnessed Jews come to belief in Christ, and that's where he established his churches, but he's witnessed far more Jews over the course of his missionary journeys that have rejected and hardened their hearts to the message. But the Gentiles will not harden their hearts toward God as the Jews have done. And so, Paul, even though he's in chains, is still on gospel mission. Our second point is that we are still on gospel mission. And we're going to look at the last two verses of the text Verses 30 and 31, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ and with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, first of all, let me just say, just as a side note, I think it's ironic, just ironic wording that Luke says that Paul proclaimed the gospel without hindrance because he's in chains. He is somewhat hindered, but we have talked before in our Acts study. In fact, I think there was an entire sermon on how you can chain up a person. You can do whatever you want to do to suppress people or to suppress the church, but you cannot bind up the word of God. You cannot bind up the gospel message. And so you can put Paul in chains, but God is still going to make him, make a way for him to proclaim the gospel and to win people to Christ, and the gospel is still going to radiate out from where Paul is at. And so we know from his letters that Paul 
that he shared the gospel and when he sends greetings to some of the people at the churches, he's talking about Caesar's household. People that are in the Roman government serving Caesar have given their life to Christ because of Paul's message. And so just, I just think it's an interesting thing to note that he's, he's proclaiming it with boldness and without hindrance, even though he's in chains. But it's because you can't bind up the gospel. Now, I love that when Luke wrote Acts, and he gets to this end here, he left us hanging, so to speak. There's no finale for Paul's life. We're left with Paul alive and in prison. In the Bible, sometimes a story will be resolved by the death of a servant and the start of a new person's story, like David and Solomon. So a lot of times there is resolution to a to a period of time or to a specific mission that God has a servant that is serving him. Like David was king. David was the greatest king in Israel's history. But there comes a time when David in the scriptures dies. Conclusion for his life and his ministry. But it's picked up by his son Solomon and then a new story begins. But we don't have that here in Acts because Paul is alive and in prison when when Luke comes to kind of what looks like an abrupt end. There's no finale for Paul's ministry. Luke doesn't wrap up the book with Paul finishing his ministry task and then going into retirement. And there's no finale for Paul's imprisonment. where He's left there and we have no idea when he gets out. I mean, we have an idea from other sources, but not from Acts. So Luke basically leaves us hanging with Paul still alive, still in prison, and while in chains, still proclaiming the gospel. There's very much not a conclusion to the story. Uh, now there is speculation by scholars that Luke was preparing to write another account, um, that Luke was going to continue with a third volume, um, but that's just speculation. But the speculation is that he was going to then pick up where he left off and, you know, give an account of more of what was going on in the church throughout the world. Um, If this was a movie, Luke could have ended it with those words, to be continued, dot, dot, dot. I'll pick up again when I get a chance to write more. But I think that was actually the purpose. I think that was God's purpose, not necessarily Luke's, because if Luke was planning to write more and we just, I mean, maybe he did and we just never found that document. But I think God's purpose is for us to leave Acts hanging like this, um, not concluded, because the story isn't supposed to end here. It keeps going. In fact, today, we are some of the main characters in that story. So whenever you engage in spiritual battle, you have a cloud of witnesses that are cheering you on, Hebrews 12 tells us, that they're watching and they're cheering you on. When you witness to someone and God uses you to bring that person to salvation in Christ, there is rejoicing that takes place in heaven. So all of heaven is watching the rest of the story play out as you and I strive to live a life of faithfulness, to be a faithful witness to what the Lord God did through Jesus and his death and resurrection and his return to glory.
we are a part of a story with a long history, a story that is of the greatest significance. And it's a story that doesn't come to an end. There will be a day when things transition into the, our eternity, but it doesn't come to an end. It ushers us into a never-ending paradise, celebrating with the coolest people in all of history because they have have a like mind and like faith with us in serving our Lord. So celebrating with the coolest people in the history of the world and worshiping the God who created us, the Lord who died for us, and the Spirit who indwells us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you've allowed us to be a part of this story. Um, We oftentimes read the Bible and we see these people and we think, man, I'd love to love to be a David or I'd love to be an Abraham or I'd love to be a Paul. And we think of them as these superheroes almost. And they were ordinary people who just believed your truth and answered your call. And so we actually are a part of that same story. And it's been handed down from generations. It's continued from generation to generation to generation, but now it's us. And we're part of a story that is a global thing. There are characters on the main stage of this story all over the world but we are taking part in that as well. And as we are reading through Scripture and witnessing what took place in Scripture from our end here, all of heaven is watching the story play out and rejoicing when the gospel is successful to change a heart and a life. And so, God, I pray that as Paul never tired, he got discouraged at times. He needed to be built up and encouraged in specific times in his life, but he never tired of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth where it needed to go because people needed to hear the message. Let us never tire as well. Let us be bold as he was and not be hindered but be bold to share the gospel with our friends, with our family, with coworkers, with people at school, with people who need to know Christ because he is the only hope in this life. Without him, Paul says, we would be most pitied if we only had hope in this life. But with, so without him, we have no hope, but with him, He's made a way for us to be able to have an eternal reward, an eternal celebration in your presence forever where nothing wicked or evil or harmful or bad can come and be a part of it. And people need to hear that. So let us be bold as Paul was. Never tire as Paul did never tire. And have a burden on our hearts for people to hear the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.